0: Leonardo da Vinci once wrote this amazing description of what it means to fly. Some have postulated that Leonardo da Vinci perhaps found a way to fly. He wrote as if he had. In fact, if you look at some of his drawings, he, he makes pictures of helicopters and gliders. He envisioned flight. And here is what he said. He said, once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward. For there there you have been, and there you always long to return. I mean, in his mind, he flew. And thus he wrote something like that. As Christians, we are looking to the sky. Did you hear me? We are looking to the sky for the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's a fact. We are not going to sit here and dwell here. We want to go home. And and there are two places in the Old Testament where David in the Old Testament proclaims in sacred song that we worship a God who is the cloud rider. He's a God who rises up on eagles' wings, and he is a God that can take us from here to Orion, here to God's celestial realm. Psalms 104, verse 3. Open your Bibles and let's turn with me. Psalms 104, verse 3. Who has laid the beams of thy chambers on the waters? Now this is a creation psalm. It's a psalm that describes God coming down in Genesis 1 and creating the world. He came down in a heavenly chariot wrapped in a cloud, according to Psalms 104 who has laid the beams of thy chambers on the waters, who makest the clouds thy chariot, who ridest on the wings of the wind, who makes the winds thy messengers, fire and flame thy ministers. This world was created when God showed up in celestial form in the pillar of fire and cloud. The light was over the deep and angels were singing at the creation of the world. Psalm 68, verse four, sing to the Lord. Now I like that song, it says, sing to the Lord. We are to let loose and sing praises to God. Did you know that? God is enthroned over our music. We should praise Him. Sing to the Lord. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him. It says it three times. Who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord. All capital letters. Meaning the covenant name of God. Yahweh. And whenever you see that name in the Bible. L-O-R-D. All capital letters. It always refers to his name in relationship to his law, the Ten Commandments. It is the covenant name of God. Exalt before him, the text says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And you may not have a father. You may have had a lousy father or mother. If you have God, you have a father. Did you hear me? If you have God, you have a father. And if you are trying to belong somewhere and you don't know how to belong, God is there for you. God is the father of the fathers. In fact, God is the father of children yet to be born. He knows them in the womb and he calls them by name. He loves every child that he has destined to be a part of his eternal kingdom. The cloud rider is the Lord. The Lord is his name. The Lord sits on the cloud. He rides the wind. And when he comes again, and that he will, Jesus is coming again. Friend, he comes to save his people as the cloud rider. David said, the Lord is his name, the cloud rider. When God rescued his people from Egypt, he spoke to Moses of the fact that when he comes to his people, he can't leave them down. He can't just drag them on the ground to safety. He lifts them up on eagles' wings. He carries them with flight to safety. Look at Exodus 19, verse 4. God is speaking, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. We don't get to God because we're good at finding God. We don't get to God because we can work our way to him. We get to God because God finds us. God is the hound of heaven who searches out for the lost. He he knows if you've had a bad week in which you've slumped and failed. He seeks you out with grace. You know, just last night I was listening to the Bible and it was going through some aspect of the scripture I was listening to. I was tired. I've been fighting a bug. I'm getting over it. And, you know, a piece of scripture went right through my mind that I was listening. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And right there, I felt the Lord nudging me closer to him to correct something and to get something better so that I would be in closer connection to him. Friend, when the Christian church was in deep trouble after the ascension of Christ, God gave the church of the Middle Ages the two wings of the great eagle, so she would fly to safety because God is the cloud rider. Now, in our Sabbath school lesson, what is the topic of this quarter? What is it? We're studying what book of the Bible? The book of Revelation. I am so happy that we are because we need that book to prepare for Christ's return. And In Revelation 12, verse 14, when the church was in trouble in the Middle Ages, God gave the church the two wings of the great eagle. The scripture reads, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. How many of you understand that time prophecy? Raise your hand. How many of you would like to understand it? Raise your hand. See, so we have to do work here today. Half of us do, half of us don't. That's all right. Now in the book of Revelation, the final evil, I'm I'm talking about the last evil that is coming on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It is coming. It is the mark of the beast issue. And some people say, ah, the mark of the beast. Friend, the mark of the beast is coming to this country. It is coming to the world. It will precede the coming of Jesus Christ. It will be an evil so dark that no human being on earth can hide from that final test and trial unless they are somehow bound to Jesus Christ and sealed so deeply that their faith will not fail. The mark of the beast is that last test for us all on planet Earth. And when it's over, Jesus comes. It is coming as sure as the dawn. It will be a global test. But friend, it will start right here in the United States of America based on Revelation chapter 13. We have a whole chapter in the Bible that tells us about America and prophecy and the coming test that will start right here. The land of the free, the home of the brave will become a place of oppression according to the book of Revelation. The United States of America is described in Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. You know, the sea beast rose out of the sea. Uh, The sea represents many nations and tribes and tongues. The, The roaring of the seas represents the roaring of the nations in Psalms. The wicked are like the sea, Isaiah says. And so out of the sea of nations, the sea beast came into existence. It is the medieval beast that operated during the Middle Ages that persecuted the church, but this is not that beast. This beast comes out of the earth. It comes out of an unpopulated area. In the context, it arises after the Middle Ages. So in the 1700s thereabouts, it is the United States of America. It says it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke eventually like a dragon. In the context, this lamb-like beast arises, as I said, at the end of the Middle Ages when the persecutions of the sea beast have come to an end. The lamb-like beast has no crown on its two horns because it has no monarchy. It's a country without a king. It arises at, after the first beast goes down. And if you study the time prophecy of Revelation 13, that beast goes down in the year 1798. The, beast, the sea beast persecuted the, middle, the church in the Middle Ages, and the beast had crowns on its head in the Middle Ages, but this one does not. And so, this one doesn't persecute in the Middle Ages. This beast will persecute at the time of the end. The lamb-like beast is pictured in Revelation 13, 12 as a global superpower, and a superpower that gains all the authority and influence of the world order of the Middle Ages. In other words, it reaches around the planet. Look at Revelation 12, 13. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth, its inhabitants, worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And so a global superpower arises in the new world that has no king, that has lamb-like in its origin. Eventually it morphs, it becomes antagonistic to the church of God, and it loses its Christian freedom. Friend, the lamb-like beast is the United States of America. A country that was born out of Christian principles. I mean, I'm thankful every day for our Constitution. You ought to take your Constitution and read it. It embodies Christian principles of freedom, of respect of property, respect of personhood. The rights of the, of the individual are more important, the rights of the group in our constitution because God cares about people. He doesn't want mobs running over individuals. And thus the United States as the lamb-like beast serves the world prophetically in its early phase as the protector of freedom for the world. The book of Revelation predicts that the corruption of America will happen before Jesus returns. There will be a shift in this country away from its its primary principles of its origin and it will speak as a dragon, the Bible says. Now there is only one place in the book of Revelation where the dragon speaks and it is noted in the book of Revelation. And when the dragon speaks, he speaks to persecute and to accuse the church. Turn to Revelation 12 and let's look at verse 10 together. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now this is, a, this, this is talking contextually about the cross. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. You see, the cross brought the victory of God to planet earth. The cross brought the prerogatives of Christ as king to planet earth. He was installed as the second Adam because of his victory. And this, this is being celebrated here. But then it says this, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. For centuries in the Old Testament, we we had an advocate of sorts before God. He would come to the portals of heaven and he would accuse the human race like like is pictured in the book of Job. And Satan was there to keep every single human being out. But when Jesus died, he gained control of planet earth and the table shifted And so heaven joins in a single voice, and they say, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. You see, they accepted us at the cross as part of the heavenly family because of Jesus, their commander. So when the dragon speaks, what does he do? He accuses God's people. He will accuse you, friend, of what you have done. You have a dark secret in your life. You have some failure. He will bring it out. He will accuse you. And he will accuse you of what you have not done. He will take advantage of your faults. He will create faults that are not yours. And things you have never done, he will bring to light and try to pin on you. Friends, Satan doesn't care. He just wants you. He wants to gobble you up and destroy your faith. As Christians, I say this without apology. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ through the redemption of his blood. Did you hear me? We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ through the redemption of his blood. We stand, though faulty we be, not guilty before God because of Jesus, our Savior. That is the Apostolic Gospel. That's the Apostolic Gospel. Now, if you've got some other version of that, you're not in the Christian faith. That is the heart and core of the Apostolic teaching. The gospel has taken the power of Satan away so that he cannot, at the time of the end, accuse you before God if you are in Christ Jesus. So the accuser has been defamed. He has no power to bring you into jeopardy with God if you, if you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, resting the finished work of Jesus Christ is not passive, it's active. It's a choice. It's a faith direction. It's throwing your will at Jesus and coming to him and letting him have you. Now, the word justification in the writings of Paul, it always means legal acquittal. There's been creative people trying to reinvent the writings of Paul over the centuries, but Paul himself gives the definition of what justification means. Paul defines this term in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, what does the text say? Who is against us? And, and it goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now what verse does that sound like when you interact with the Gospel of John? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but it should have eternal life. Now notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying... He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also give us all things with him? Friend, if, Jesus, if God, since God gave Jesus to die for your sins, don't you think God cares about overcoming your sins? The same one who died for you will carry you to the end. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Sometimes in the church, we end up accusing each other. You ever notice that? Church members can accuse someone back and forth. Sometimes people start pity parties so they can be the object of accusation. It's a really complex thing. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Here's what it says. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is intercedes for us so when we speak of the sanctuary message we better not leave out justification by faith Christ as our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary is the guarantee that we are accepted before God and what he did at the cross is the basis of it so in Christ the sinner is not guilty now pinch yourself come on take your hand we're going to do some interaction with the truth here pinch yourself a little bit do you feel that just a little bit. Mm. Now don't pinch yourself to where you're hurt. Do you feel that? Now I want you to feel the fact that God has forgiven you. He has. Now he hasn't forgiven you to be a rebel, but he has forgiven you. And that forgiveness can carry and transform the life that really does appreciate it. The Holy Spirit regenerates us because of that fact. In Christ, the sinner is not guilty. God has taken the fangs out of the serpent's mouth so he cannot wound you in the judgment day. He can say anything he wants to about you. It will not fly in the judgment day if you're in Christ. So why do we live for God as Christians? What's the motive of our life? Is it to prove something so we can look perfect at the time of the end and say, hey, I made it. I vindicated the character of God. Friends, you can't vindicate the character of God. Jesus vindicates the character of God. But God wants to be in us the hope of glory. He wants to be transformative in our lives. So why do we live for God as Christians? What is the changed life? Friend, we live for God because we are grateful for the cross of Christ. We live for God because the kindness of God has brought us to repentance. Because the love of God has got us inside and it moves us now to love each other and to lay down any kind of oppositional attitude so that the love of God permeates us because God in Christ loved us. The dragon has no power over the forgiven life that bears testimony to the truth that Jesus saves because Christ has dealt with the legal requirement of the law for you. He has died for your sins and you are not guilty if you are in Christ. So the church is the theater of God's grace. It is the very place that bears testimony to Jesus. Turn to Revelation 12, verse 11, describing the apostolic church coming into the Middle Ages. It says, And they conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. When we grasp the love of God for us, when we deeply sense what it meant to give Jesus to us, And we understand the suffering of God to atone for our sins. We'll live and die for God. That's it. It doesn't matter. We'll live and die for Him. And thus they did. And they bore testimony to the truth. Laura Joseph is a member of our church and she had some pretty major surgery recently. Many of you know her. What a darling Christian woman she is. She has good reasons to be down lately. She's now at a rehab unit learning to use her body again. She had Extensive neck surgery, learning to bend over again without falling over to get her balance. I visit her this week to pray for her and encourage her. Thursday evening, middle of that cold weather, I finally found out where she's at. My wife had already called her. Diana calls ahead of many of my pastoral visits without me even knowing it and encourages people all week, is what I have found over the years. Thank you, honey. Appreciate that. So I got there. She was all cheerful. She had had the prayer interaction that my wife gave her from work. So when I got to the rehab unit last Thursday, I wanted to encourage her, right? But she was all cheerful. So she, she spoke of how grateful she is that God is with her, that right now in the journey, she's okay. She, she began to tell me this. No, I'm not down. I'm not fe- afraid. No, the Lord is with me. And she testified of how God had worked it all out so the doctor's visits would come together and she would not be messed up and it was working. And then she said with joy on her face that she's so happy because Jesus is coming soon. That's what she said to me. I mean, I'm going to encourage her and she's giving me this pep talk about the coming of the Lord, about healing her life, the power of God in her life. Her face lit up as she pictured Jesus coming for her on the clouds. I told her that my sermon is about the cloud rider. And then she got real happy. She said, yeah, Jesus is coming. So I had prayer with her. I left her there. And man, it was brighter in the room than it was in my car. It was smoky. What a wonderful Christian woman. Laura has overcome a lot of health-related trouble in her life because of her faith in Jesus Christ and because of the word of her own personal testimony. You see, when God visits us, we need to open our mouths and tell people what the Lord has done for us. She lifted this preacher that night by the word of her testimony, which is proof that she is an overcomer. That's how end-time believers will overcome. They will not be silent witnesses. There's no such thing. They will advocate the kingdom of God. They will speak of what Jesus has done for their life. They will pray for others when the opportunity arises. They will use the name of Jesus, rightly so, to lift the soul that needs him, as Laura did for the preacher this week. And so the dragon is angry with the church in America that bears testimony to the truth of the gospel. You look at the context of Revelation 13, this lamb-like beast, the United States of America, the remnant church arises at the end of the Middle Ages in the United States of America at the end of the Second Great Awakening. So in the Mark of the Beast issue, the dragon will leave the sea of nations in Europe, it says in Revelation. He will go off to make war on the remnant church in America where it began to destroy with satanic rage and fury the church that keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that dark attack will occur, as I said, right here in Christian America because the lamb-like beast will speak like a dragon eventually as it institutes the mark of the beast. And the lamb-like beast will build an image to the sea beast of the Middle Ages whose mortal wound was healed. Friend, America will turn on God at the time of the end. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. In Revelation 13, the beast is Antichrist, the sea beast. It represents the unified world kingdom order that governed Europe in the Middle Ages. Before he shows up in the Middle Ages as Antichrist... The beast from the sea had a pre-existence, just like Christ had a pre-existence. John says he was in the world. The beast was formed out of world kingdoms before it came into its antichrist phase in the Middle Ages. The beast from the sea shows up very clearly in Revelation 13, 5, for 42 prophetic months in the Middle Ages, which is three and a half prophetic years of 1260 literal years. Now, 42 times 30, got your calculator out? What is it? 1260 days. Now, knowing that the Bible uses a lunar calendar, 30 day is what's being used prophetically, a 30-day month. So three and a half years is 42 months. 42 months is 1260 days with a 30-day uh, month here intended. And so Bible students of the Reformation figured this out. This is not new stuff. This is old stuff. They figured out that that time prophecy started in the year 538 A.D., When the church gained control of the throne of the Roman emperors. And that this fusion of church and state was oppressive. It oppressed the Protestant Reformation. And millions of people died in the Counter-Reformation. For the Bible and righteousness by faith. And so that time prophecy runs from 538 when the siege of Rome lifts to 1798 when Rome is besieged again in the French Revolution. And thus the old era of the Holy Roman Empire of church and state comes down. And what we have is the rise of of modern era of nations, of nation states. Friend, Jesus' ministry, it's no accident, Jesus' ministry was for three and a half literal years because the Antichrist ministry is for three and a half prophetic years. Christ built up the church for three and a half years. The Antichrist power in the Middle Ages tore it down. And so the antichrist beast from the sea tears down the church that Christ established. And then the beast gets a deadly wound. Now Jesus got a deadly wound on the cross, right? The beast gets a deadly wound. It's like he goes to the cross. In the French Revolution, the beast power came down with a deadly wound. The religio-political system of the Middle Ages crashed decisively. And thus the kingdom of France ended the old order of the church state that had governed the Middle Ages, as it ushered us into the era of modern nations, of nationalism. But the book of Revelation teaches us that the lamb-like beast which used to be a Christian America will at the time of the end become the false prophet of the beast. In other words, it will work with an emerging world order to bring it under the authority of Satan so that God's people are attacked and His word is compromised. And this country that we all love, I'm a patriot. I love the United States of America. I'm a patriot. My son is in the military. This country that we all love, that once celebrated its constitution of freedom, according to the book of Revelation, will at the time of the end repudiate every principle of its constitution to persecute the faithful church right here in Christian America. You know, the persecutions in the Middle Ages were overseas. The Bible teaches it's coming to this country at the time of the end. In Revelation 12, 17, notice the dragon. The dragon was angry with the woman, representing God's people universal. And he went off to make war. He left the old world, implied. He went off to make war on the remnant of her offspring or seed, on those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Friend, God's end-time church will... And then it says in my translation, which is not there. And he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. God's end-time church will overcome in just the same way the apostolic church overcame. By faith in Jesus, as they give the world their testimony, there will be people who die in this country who are faithful to God's word. And those people, like the early Christians, their blood will be the seed of evangelism that will spread the message far and wide. Now, I'll make this statement very directly. I want you to hear me. A lukewarm church that does not bear testimony to the truth will not overcome at the time of the end. Did you hear me? A lukewarm church that does not bear testimony of the truth will not overcome at the time of the end. That final remnant that the dragon attacks will honor the apostolic gospel of God's grace without apology, and it will be forever grateful for God's forgiveness at the cross as fundamental to its right to be remnant. The Bible says the remnant church will also keep the commandments of God. Now, we live in an age when many Christians think it's not in vogue to keep God's commandments. You hear preachers in the pulpits across the land saying, you know, God did away with his law, he nailed it at the cross, but they won't tell their little child when he steals or kills or does something crazy that God's law is done away with. So they talk out of both sides of their mouth. Friends, God's moral law has not been done away with. Jesus did not eradicate that at the cross. He died because he had to atone for it. This is nonsense theology. The remnant in Revelation will keep all of God's Ten Commandments without shame because God is one. You can't whack away one of the ten and still have them as a single unit. They will keep the first four of the Ten Commandments as well as the last six. The first four point to our covenant relationship with God, including the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment, which is Saturday in the Bible. And they will honor the law of God as the principle of love because Jesus Christ died to atone for our sins that broke the law of love. The Remnant Church will keep the last six commandments that direct us in our duty to man and country as good citizens in the land. You see, the law of God takes care of our vertical relationships and it takes care of our horizontal relationships. The Remnant Church will respect the family as God's institution on earth to teach children his law and thus children will honor their parents in the remnant church because the role of father and mother is respected without some philosopher, king, theologian reinventing what it means to be a mother or a father. The Bible gives us that direction. In the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty thirteen, God gave his royal, holy covenant command to his people, his, his law on sapphire tablets we learn in Exodus 24. And so the law came from his throne, the sapphire throne of God. It's an eternal thing. It can never be done away with. So the sixth commandment taken from God's sapphire throne law says, thou shalt not what? Kill. Do you read it with me? Thou shalt not what? Kill. And it means murder. The remnant church will protect life. It will will be pro-life in this sense that it will care about every human life. Whether that life is mature or not, it will care about life. Thou shalt not kill. The remnant church will protect the unborn like the early Seventh-day Adventist church did. Because thou shalt not kill. The remnant church will not participate in the slaughter of children and babies in medical clinics. And it will not side with the laws of the land that make it legal to kill a baby yet unborn. And even at the time it is born. It will not sin against God in this way because it will keep all of the commandments of God. This past month, the state of New York passed an evil law. I mean, I say an evil law. An evil law that makes it legal in New York to kill a child as it's being born for reasons that are carnal and evil. And where are the preachers of this country calling this what it is? The remnant church will not align with the greatest evil of our time and its medical institutions. Those in our midst who would do such a thing, who would make it acceptable in our hospitals, destroy babies like this, are not men and women of God in the remnant church. They are frauds. They need Christ, they must repent, because we must never be about this stuff. The remnant church, friend, will keep all of God's commandments, and like the early church that visited the trash heaps of the Roman Empire to find babies discarded by evil men and women who didn't want them, they will find those children, and they raised them in the Christian church. We know this from the Christian papara. We know that that's what the early church did. The remnant church will save every child it can so that every child can learn to live and love Jesus Christ. The value of a human soul cannot be measured there will be a remnant friend that keeps the Sabbath of the fourth commandment and there will be a remnant that that is for life as the sixth commandment clearly teaches us so the dragon will be angry at the time of the end and the dragon will go off to make war on that righteous remnant that keeps all of God's commandments and bears testimony to Jesus Christ the latest in church will repent of its evils did you hear me the Laodicean church will repent. It will take the admonition of Jesus. And thus the in church will rise to become the remnant church of the apocalypse that lives for Jesus and that keeps all of the commandments of God. The fourth and the sixth. Friend, we cannot afford as Christians to compromise with evil. Period. A hospital that would boast of its right to destroy the unborn in a legal affidavit presented to the state of Maryland has no moral right to have any part in the Remnant Church. Do you hear me? Has no moral right to claim the name that is associated with the Remnant Church if it files an affidavit so it can be built based on that premise. Ministers who will hide this fact and cover for this fact have no right to bear a ministerial credential in the Remnant Church. Why? Because God will judge His people. We are living in the time of the investigative pre-advent judgment. The hour of God's judgment has come. We cannot afford to think this way. Christ is coming for His people. We must be the people here described. Now as I read my Bible in Revelation 14, there are three messages that God will give to this world. And the cloud rider will come in glory to save a righteous, obedient church at the time of the end. The remnant church will rise and become what it is as it proclaims the three angels' messages. The first angels' message, friend, is the call to live and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ because the hour of God's judgment has come. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 14, 6. Now, I, I ask you this question. How many of you have memorized the three angels' messages? Okay, a few of you. How many of you have memorized the Ten Commandments? The Beatitudes when you were in church school? Now... Of the three great pieces of the Bible you ought to memorize, you should memorize the Ten Commandments, obviously. You should also memorize the Beatitudes, which is Jesus' interpretation of it. But as end-time believers, we should memorize the three angels' messages. So let's go through it all together here. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said, with what kind of voice? What does the text say? With a loud voice, you gotta get excited about the first angel's message. Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him and made heaven and earth, a sea, and the fountains of water. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, the fear of God means to love the Lord your God. To fear God in Proverbs 8:13 is the hatred of evil and all perverted speech. In Proverbs 16:6, 6, the fear of the Lord means to turn away from evil. The remnant church will give no place for evil in its teaching or practice. It will be true to the Bible, true to the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, as John here told us, that it is God's intervention through the prophets. The remnant church will also proclaim, as this message here indicates, an eternal gospel to the world. Now, that's not a reinvented gospel at the time of the end. An eternal gospel means it was preached way back, and it's still preached. So it's not the role of the remnant church to reinvent the gospel. I am very grateful today for Martin Luther who nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. I'm grateful that he stood for righteousness by faith and gave it back to the church from the Bible and that we can hold on to these things as Christians. It's an eternal gospel we preach and teach. They will teach the same gospel as taught by Paul, Peter, John, Jesus, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, and the great, the great revivalist of the Second Great Awakening. Friend, we all need the eternal gospel of God's forgiveness in Jesus. It is the gospel of God's grace that saves the sinner from his or her sin. If you've got a a way of thinking where that's not primary, you need to adjust your thinking. And so the first angel's message starts with what God has done for us, the good news of the gospel. Take your Bibles, turn to Romans 1, 16 and 17. I like this verse because it shows you what was the focus of Paul's life. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, which means the good news. It is what? What does the text say? It is the the power of God for salvation. Now, have you ever felt like you can't be saved? You ever felt like there's no way you can make it? The gospel is God's way to save you and your family. For everyone who has faith, you see, faith is that condition. Once it's met, we have the power of the good news to the Jew first and also the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith as it is written, he through faith is righteous, that person will live. Friend, we don't need a reinvented gospel at the time of the end. We need the everlasting gospel of God's forgiveness in Jesus that makes men and women alive and not guilty for the judgment day. The second angel's message draws a line in the sand. It follows the first. It has no loud voice it will be repeated at the very end of time in the fourth angel's message. And it was given in this country, in, basically in eastern United States in the eight, around the year 1843. The second angel's message draws a line in the sand, so the people of God at the time of the end will resist and reject the evils of end-time Babylon. Now when you read the book of Revelation, God's church is described as a woman. Babylon is a fallen church system. And she has dominion of the kings of the earth. She's built on seven hills. It's a religio system that has affected the entire planet. And so Babylon in the book of Revelation means that we should avoid any fallen attitude or teaching of a fallen church system that does not align with the Bible. The harlot church system rides the beast in Revelation 17. That is the world kingdom order at the time of the end. Jesus didn't die to make the church more worldly. The church does not need to have its connection to the world power to be the church. Jesus died to make us free from the world. John said he came to destroy the works of the devil. But the harlot of the apocalypse is worldly because she has cast her future with the kings of the earth. Revelation 14.8. Another angel second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passions. Now this verse that you're looking at gave rise to the Seventh-day Adventist church in 1843. We came into existence because of this verse. Because out of the second great awakening, Charles Fitch preached a sermon about the corruption of the churches of his time. And he said, there must be a people on earth who follow the Bible. And thus it happened. The remnant church, friend, will keep will keep all of God's commandments. As I've said, including the fourth and what other commandment? The sixth. There will be no place for priests or preachers who are corrupt with wine and alcohol or men of the cloth who lead ch- the church into worldly practice or who prey on the children of the church. I'm sorry, that's not part of what it means to be connected to God at the time of the end. So Babylon has fallen. And thus the church must never fall into the practice of the world or cover for it in its proclamation of the gospel. You know, if we don't protect the weak as Christians, what good are we? Can I ask you that question? What good are we if we don't protect the weak? If we only protect the strong, are we really Christians? You know, if we make no difference in the world that we live in, if we don't interact for the cause of righteousness, then we're missing it. So Babylon has fallen because she doesn't care. She's aligned with the world, but doesn't care about the weak that are wounded by it. So what is pure and undefiled religion for the church at the time of the end? James one twenty seven, Religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. The remnant church that keeps all of the commandments of God, friend, will proclaim the mark of the beast with moral clarity. The Mark of the Beast warning in the Bible is the most severe warning God has ever given to the human race. It is a warning that will prepare the world for the end of the world. And it is also a proclamation by implication of the seal and sign of the everlasting covenant, which is the opposite of the Mark of the Beast. It's a warning that points directly to the importance of the fourth commandment of the Holy Decalogue of God's eternal law that was taken from his sapphire throne that can never be violated or changed. Men of religion who, who in the church would teach us that we can opt out of one of these sacred principles have missed the boat. End time issues have to do with faith in Christ and the integrity of God's law as the covenant charter of the universe. Revelation fourteen 9. Let's just look at the third angel's message. Another angel of third followed them, same with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also shall drink of the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. That is the strongest warning given in the Bible ever. And notice it has to do with the second coming of Christ as the cloud rider. We will not be able to meet him if we fall on the right, wrong side of this issue. Now look at verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Keyword, no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friend, the beast is the world kingdom system at the time of the end that persecutes. And we have seen this in this new abortion law in New York. Just how beastly the world kingdom can treat children all the way up to the time they're born for silly reasons to take the life of a child. In Exodus twenty twelve, the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is the sign of God's covenant with his people. You know, when you lose a sense of who God is, you can do anything. You can reinterpret anything that's clear moral sense. The Sabbath is described in the book of Revelation as the seal of the living God is described in Scripture as the covenant sign of His eternal covenant. It is the bulwark that stands between faith and unbelief. There would have never been the theory of evolution if the Sabbath commandment had been taught by the Christian church correctly. We would have never bought into the church to deistic and theistic evolution because the Sabbath says we came from a loving God who created us. In seven days He made the world and He rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath is the great bulwark against atheism. And thus the Bible says it is the sign that we might know God. Ezekiel 20.12 Moreover also I gave them my Sabbath what does the text say? To be what? A sign between me and them. That's a relationship sign that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. God gave it to us so we would stay close to God. Revelation 14.11 says the worshippers of the beast have no rest day or night. The Greek word For rest here, the Greek word for rest is anapausis. And it is the consistent Greek word of the Greek Septuagint and of the New Testament for the rest of the seventh day Sabbath. You cannot avoid the Greek language here. Seventh day Sabbath rest is lost at the end in the Mark of the Beast issue by those who follow the beast. That, That means it is the issue in the Mark of the Beast. In Hebrews 4, the Sabbath is given as a sign and proof of the gospel, the abiding rest we have in Jesus. Now, I want Jesus. The Sabbath is a sign of that rest in Jesus. Now, God is not of a double mind. God would not do away with the Sabbath. In the same breath, tell us the Sabbath reminds us of the gospel. The Sabbath is a sign of the gospel because it is not done away with. God has not destroyed the seventh-day Sabbath that bears witness to the truth of the apostolic gospel, he doesn't play tricks with his word that way. In Hebrews four, <clears throat> Jesus said at the time of the end that we had better keep the Sabbath if we want to be ready for the second coming. Turn to Matthew twenty four verse twenty. Pray that your flight may not be. What did Jesus say? May not be in winter or when or on a Sabbath. <clears throat> now go to verse. Now go to verse twenty one. For then there will be great tribulation. See, the great tribulation comes on the world at the end. Christ is saying you need to be ready for it. So have a strong prayer life and keep the Sabbath. That's what he said. For then there will be great tribulation such as never been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So what is the essence of these three angels' messages? that prepares the world at the time of the end for the cloud rider. See, God has given us the three angels, so we will align with his word, align with his truth, and be ready for the second coming of Christ. What are they about for the people of God? What's the core of it about? In Revelation 14, 12, it's summarized. The three are summarized in a single statement, a single call from God. Because the three angels are really one call from God... Just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. The three, the three angels are a single call. In other words, a single point at what God is getting at here. What is that point? Look at Revelation 14, 12. Immediately following the mark of the beast, third angel. It ends this way. Here is a call for the patience or the endurance of the saints. Those who do what? Keep the commandments of God. And what's the other element? The faith of Jesus. Obedience and faith together, not apart. It's a call for obedience and faith at the time of the end, friend. There will be a, friends. There will be a people on earth at the time of the end who keep the commandments of God and who have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They will not see the two ideas at odds with each other. And what will Jesus do for us when the beast, the sea beast, comes back to life? The harlot that is Babylon, the lamb-like beast. That is the false prophet, which will become a corrupted superpower the United States as it shifts. And all the kings of the earth unite on the last day, according to the book of Revelation, to destroy God's people, the remnant church from the face of earth. What will happen then? What will Jesus do? Will he just sit back and do nothing, or will he intervene? Friend, it will be midnight, and there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for the destruction of God's people. And it will look like the church that is faithful, that has been persecuted at the time of the end, will fall. And the final storm clouds will come. And it will be dark. And it will look like if you stand for truth, you will not stand alive another day. And then Jesus will come to save. Then the sky will part. And through a massive wormhole as the sky is rolled up like a scroll, he will bring the armies of heaven on the clouds of heaven to rescue his people. It's the final exodus at the end of time. It's not from Egypt, it's from here. As Christ comes, his name is the Lord, Jehovah God. Jesus is the cloud rider. And many of God's people are going to lay down their lives to bear testimony of the truth that will get us to that day. There will be an era of martyrs just before the end. But Jesus is coming. He will resurrect those dear saints and He will save those who hold firm through this final trial. And there will be a generation at the end who are not stuck on themselves, who don't point to any perfection they have in themselves. They point to the cross of Christ and to what He did for them. And thus they obey Him by faith. And when it's all over, some of their friends will die, some will not. But altogether, the resurrection puts them all together again with the saints from every age. In the final day of God, when the cloud rider appears in the sky. And the brightness of God pierces the darkness of the evil age. And a new beginning will never end. Revelation fourteen thirteen and 14. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, and seated on the white cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Friend, Jesus is the cloud rider, and we will meet Jesus on the great harvest day in the cloud. And Jesus will be smiling on that day because Jesus is looking for you, dear heart, for me and our families. It's grace that it's all about. He's looking for us in the cloud. And so He has given us the three angels' messages, not to offend us, but to cause us to study the Bible, to cause us to deepen in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and to help us align so that we have the faith of Jesus. And we keep the commandments of God. Is, are the three angels a love call or not? They are. They're a love call to this world. I pray by God that you will heed them and I will. And our families will be saved by the mercy of God. In Jesus' name.